Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison, as ever, sharing a sofa and who knows what else. Syphilis? Dr. M. Rx Dentith. I don't know. Uh, your eye is looking... Quite a bit better there, I have to say. Well, the makeup helps, but yes, I am in recovery mode. I am much better. That's the only thing that matters. The problem with modern medical care, Joshua, Uh, the problem with modern medical care is that doctors are so much better at stitching these days, so you don't actually get visible scars if your doctor is ah, doing a good job. Mm. Doing a good job. And unfortunately... I went to a good doctor, mm. so it's well, very that's unlikely. That was your first mistake. Very unlikely I'll have a scar. I, I was know, so it's, disappointed. It's... I got clipped. I got whacked by a thing last year that went right, right, sort of, uh, you know, hit my brow and then my cheek and gave me a perfect line down there. But I didn't whack myself hard enough, unfortunately. No cool scar. It would have been a really good one if it had stayed in that spot. Josh, you should always whack yourself hard. Well, yes, yes, now I know. Now, I understand uh, this is no longer the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. It's the podcaster's guide to 5G technology. Now that you're an expert in that field. It's true. I was in the spin-off this week, which Mm. for those of you who don't live in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is a... How would, you, how would you describe the spin-off? Sort of an online magazine, sort of leftish leaning, but but bit of entertainment, bit of news, bit of current events. So you have to say it's a website for the the bourgeoisie, but anyway. They, yeah, same thing. I was asked to pass comment on 5G conspiracy theories for a column by the ever-great Emily Wright. Mm-hmm. I wrote some responses. She used them. I am now an expert on 5G and 5G conspiracy theories. We should actually probably do the We 5G should actually, yeah, because it's kind of... Given I'm now a world mm, expert. It's kind of becoming the new 1080 in New Zealand, at least, isn't it? It very much is. Mm, the latest thing that everyone Although it is also the cell phones cause cancer of the 1990s. Right, yes, yes. Yeah, no, that is something we should get into. That's not what we're getting into today. Um, we're, we're still on our pseudo-scientific kick. I was, I was a little bit a little bit outraged, I have to say, when you first proposed this topic and sent me a link to, to Japhethic theory, which is what we're going to be talking about. And, and I discovered it's a, a, we had a read through a Soviet uh, linguistics theory and realized you've been holding out on me. We could have been talking linguistics for who knows how long. I like a, a My... slow burn. See, this podcast is the NCIS of podcasts. Now, you might think, that's a really weird thing to say about any podcast. But let me tell you about It's the most NCIS. popular show in the States, isn't it? It is. And it's been mm. going on now for 14, going on 15 years. Dang. This year will be the 15th season. And despite the fact it's really old, they have been parceling out plot points and character development for the main characters slowly but surely over the course of a decade and a half. And that's what I'm doing with this podcast, right. Joshua. I am keeping some of the really, really creme de la creme conspiracy theories for the middle age of the podcast so that we still appear to be vital and essential to podcast listeners out there. Brilliant. But also at the same time, bumbling and incompetent as we have um, a bunch, or well, a bunch, two uh, actual updates and retractions to do And this. we've got a sting for yep. that. So let's use that sting mm. to justify the updates and the retractions. Mm. Updates and retractions. Right, so we, can't, we have a, a correction apiece. 
this week. Who wants to go first? I shall go first. Okay, please do. Because this is the embarrassing part. Mm -hmm. In last week's episode, we talked about Nazi pseudoscience, and we talked about the occultic nature of much Nazi belief. We also put this belief down to one Heinrich Himmler. Mm. Now, I say this with all due seriousness, but we apologise to the family of Heinrich Himmler for labelling him as an occultic lunatic. I'm pretty sure he was, though, but not the specific yeah. occultic the lunatic. The specific yeah. one we should have been talking about was Rudolf Hess. Mm. It was Rudolf Hess who was, of course, fascinated by the occult. It was Rudolf Hess who was summoned to Scotland by, apparently, Alistair Crowley. It was, in fact, Rudolf Hess we should have been mentioning. So apologies well, to the family of Heinrich Himmler. Uh, we should have been making fun of Hess instead. Mm. I mean, to be fair, Himmler was the one behind the Ananerba that we were talking about mostly last week, but the specific story about people being summoned to England by Alistair Crowley's... Was very Hessian. Was, in fact, it should and have been not Hess, so. Himmlerian. So thank you to Mike, astute listener who sent in that correction. Who has forced us to apologise mm. to the family of Heinrich Himmler. I hope you're happy now. I assume he is. Uh, so, my turn. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had our news e um, article episode, um, and the, the, the top story was the fun of the missing, missing bodies in the Vatican Cemetery. Now, I got the wrong end of the stick a little bit when um, reading up one of these articles. It, it, it was sort of... It talked about these ossuaries, which they had found bones in which they were testing to be the princesses, and the way the article was read was written, and I assume it, it, it was like the Catholic Times or something, so I, I, they probably assumed that its readers would know the fine details of Teutonic cemeteries in the Vatican, but I did not. So basically when they were talking about two princesses and finding two ossuaries, I had made the connection that they were little things, each of which containing the bones of a princess. I was completely wrong. Um, what had actually been found, these two ossu ossuaries, uh, were gigantic freaking vaults underneath one of these bits in the, in the um, cemetery containing lots and lots and lots of bones. So when, as we talked about, they'd been doing a bunch of reconstructing of that area of the cemetery, they'd obviously basically gathered up all the bones and just dumped them in a pit, essentially. Oh, it was a, a, a nice pit from the sounds of things. But a, <laughs> a, fan, a fancy pit. A fancy pit. fancy bones. But a bone pit nonetheless. So, so rather than having two sets of bones that they're testing for DNA, they have thousands upon thousands of bones, uh, which they're going to be sifting through for quite some time, I imagine, trying to figure out which bones belong with which. And they talk about there are fragments of bones as well, so obviously a bunch of them have broken into little pieces and so on. So... Um, while I'd assumed it would be an easy um, task to find out whether or not the bones they had belonged to these princesses whose bodies had gone missing, uh, possibly it will not be. In fact, you can imagine a situation where they go, so we've found more than one potential match for a princess of that realm. Mm. Because it turns out that maybe their parents had been a little bit more fickle than we thought they were, because mm. there are a lot of people with genetic matches here, an awful lot of people. And all that all that 18th, uh, 17th century medieval noblery and breeding that I assume went on. That's why they all had noses, mm. apart mm. from the ones who didn't. Anyway, so that was a good excuse to use the little sting, I thought. But we're at the end now of our updates and retractions. We have nothing more to retract. So instead, let us return back to Soviet Russia mm. and the fun of Soviet linguistics. Mm. So Joshua, you like linguistics. I do. You also like linguini. Ah, oh, it's not bad. 
I prefer linguistics. Like, you like vodka and Russian orthodoxy? No. no well, I then this theory is not going to be for you. Well, it is a little bit, I think. We're talking about Japhetic theory. Um, this is kind of kind of going to be a bit of a repeat of the Lysenko episode and that we're going to be looking at another wacky uh, Soviet um, pseudoscientific theory that kind of found favor by being the right kind of science, by being mm. nicely, nicely sort of communistic in nature. Um, but it's an interesting story. I think it's an interesting story anyway, because I, I do like me some linguistics. Um, so we should probably start by saying what it actually was. Uh, Japhetic theory was a linguistic theory uh, promoted by a fellow. Now, I've seen several articles and in each one they give him a different last letter of his name. In some they call him Nicolas, in some he's Nicolage, in some um, he's Nicolay. I don't know if that's just the, 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 the language of that region puts different letters on the end of your name in different context or whatever. Or just very bad transliterations. Or very bad transliterations, but we'll, we'll stick with Nicolas. Nicolas uh, Yakovlevich Marr. Um, he was he was a historian, he was a linguist uh, in the early part of the, the 1900s. Um, he, by, by all accounts, he was quite a good one. Um, he was a, a, a noted expert. He was from um, the, the sort of from Georgia, basically around that area. I think Georgian was his native tongue and he was he was quite an expert in the history of the Georgian language. Um, but then he started to branch out, um, and he came up with, with this idea that there was a family of languages called Japhetic languages. This is named after um, Japheth, one of Noah's sons in the Bible, uh, because you have um, Semitic peoples and Semitic languages. That comes from Shem. Uh, there was also apparently there used to be um, a family of languages called Hamitic after Noah's son Ham, although supposedly that that categorization um, no longer applies. People don't think that's a real one. So we just sort of have the term Semitic, but he, but he proposed this idea of Japhetic as um, uh, uh, companions to Semitic and Hamitic languages. Um, and specifically, he thought that Japhetic languages were a family of languages that included the uh, what are called Kartvelian languages, which were languages kind of from the Caucasus region around where he was, which included Georgian and a bunch of other ones, and also a bunch of Semitic languages, such as Arabic and Hebrew and Aramaic and so on, which are found in the Middle East. Um, and straight away, that, that does seem a little bit odd that we've got... We've got um, sort of North Caucasus region and Middle East region which is it should actually be like that, I suppose, if I'm, I'm holding, for the podcast this is I'm holding my hands up in what I assume are roughly the relative positions of those two areas of the world. Probably completely wrong, but anyway. And also looking like you're about to do something like I'm about to thriller. About to pounce at the camera, yes. Uh, what I'm, the point is, though, there's a bit of a gap in between. In fact, there's quite a gap in between the two. So it does seem a little bit odd right off the bat um, that you'd want to claim that you have this family of languages that appear to be localised to two quite separate areas of the world. But nevertheless, um, that's what he thought. He, he thought he could prove this, I don't know. Um, and his, his theories kind of, kind of grew from there. Um, he talked about the idea that, um, that uh, all the languages in the world could be descended from a single proto-language and that there were, there, there were sort of strata. I think he, he was a bit of an archaeologist himself, so he was sort of thinking in slightly archaeological terms where you'd have these strata of languages with sort of the older proto-languages deeper down and then the um, more recent ones up and up and up. So Japhetic being sort of a strata below the modern day languages of those two areas, that, given that they sort of came from this one family. Um, and then from there, 
he sort of went to say that that um, these language strata also corresponded to social strata and that certain social classes were more related to certain language strata. And that's where Stalin and, and the socialists and the communists started to stand up and pay attention because they were very much into their class consciousness and what have you, weren't they? Yes, and indeed this is where the imaging of Lysenkoism becomes so mm. obvious in that Lysenkoism became popular because Stalin liked Lysenko and Lysenko's theories. In the same respect, Stalin liked Ma and Ma's theories. So by having endorsement basically by the chairperson of the committee, these things became the orthodox science of the realm. Although what's interesting about Jephetics, as opposed to Lysenkoism, is that Lysenkoism dies after Stalin. The Jephetic theory, not so much. Yes, yes. But we'll get we, to we, that. We'll get to that. We'll get we to will. that in just a minute. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting as a little sort of side note in a, in a callback to last week's episode about Nazi pseudoscience. Apparently, Ma um, was quite sort of passionate in his beliefs and was quite strongly opposed to a bunch of German linguists uh, at the time uh, who, from the sounds of things, were were sort of um, embarking on a, on a similar project to the Ananerba, while, while they, the Ananerba, were looking for archaeological proof of sort of the lineage of the Germanic people. These linguists were looking for linguistic proof, trying to trace the languages back um, to sort of show this, this same sort of lineage they were after. And he was apparently very, very much opposed to them. Um, among other things, he thought they overemphasized the Christian influence in European sort of language and history and significantly underemphasized the Muslim influence from, the, from North Africa and the Middle East and so on. Um, so, and he was possibly a little bit on the money there, but... Um, and in the same respect that we talked last week about how the cultural diffusion angle the Germans had at that time, trying to find some kind of global source to justify Aryan supremacy in the way that Ma is doing the same thing linguistically to show that there's a, a tight relationship between his region of the world and another important region of the world. This continues to this day. So you've got pseudo-linguistics when it comes to people who claim that, say, the Celts got here. Uh, because when it turns out when you actually investigate the Celtic New Zealand thesis, it turns out the Celts got here because Greek and Egyptian navigators got here. There's a kind of disconnect here between Egypt, Greece, and mm. Celtic England, but that gets left to one side. And they'll go, well, the proof positive of that is that the Egyptian word for sun is Ra. The Polynesian word for sun is Ra. Must be the same language, or at least share the same language mm. root. Although, as any linguist worth their salt will point out, the problem with linguistics and comparative linguistics is that actually the human mouth is only capable of making a mm. very small selection of sounds. And very simple terms, or simple words for things, tend to actually have a high degree of resemblance across languages because we tend to use very simple sounds for everyday things. Mm. So it's actually not unusual that two completely unrelated cultures would share the same word for something which was so central to their lives 
the sun. Mm. And I mean, even just statistically, if you know, we call out that comparison because it's, it's striking to us, but there have been tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of different languages across the world and across history. So the fact that you can find two of them that use that are completely unrelated, but having to use the, the same term is just sort of, you know, is, is well within the realms of statistics. Yeah. But that's because humans are bad at estimating probabilities. Well, we are. I mean, a, um, a note on the idea of sort of proto-languages and going back. Um, as, as I understand it, there, there is a genuine project in linguistics to try and sort of reconstruct the proto-languages. When, when it's clear that you have a family of languages that all come from a common source, and you have some idea of how those languages have changed over time, you can then sort of extrapolate backwards and try and sort of work out with well, the language that these ones will... Um, descended from must have sounded a bit like this. We we know that this these sounds changed in this way and these word forms changed in this way. So if we sort of work the change backwards and then keep going, um, we can have an idea of what the sort of you know some sort of proto Indo-European language or something. But there is a lot of educated guesswork involved. There's a lot of well probably you know assuming this and if if we if we assume that nothing happened in between and so on. So it is all quite dodgy and it's also the absolute best we can do is basically go back one generation into the past. Um, th th there's just no way of, of going any further than that. You know, you can take existing languages, maybe work back from there, but then that's so hypothetical that even going another layer back. And so if you want to talk about, you know, how long have humans been around? A couple of hundred thousand years talking at least, and yet recorded history is maybe a couple of, th or a few thousand. So... Yeah. When it comes to talk of proto-languages, if anyone tries to tell you that um, that we know the common language from which all other ones evolved, they're telling you pork pies. Although it didn't stop, say, the ancient Egyptians from trying to work out what mm. the first language was. Well, yes, was. I think it's a, it's a common And I mean, there's a, a famous project. story about that, although I think the story itself is actually largely apocryphal, and actually is found in a lot of different mm. cultures. The but the idea of putting, the yeah, putting yeah. children in a tower... And they, they just leave them alone to see what language they will naturally speak. And they come back several years later, and the children are making these kind of guttural ba-like sounds. Oh, oh, that, that sounds a lot like, insert language here, so Babylonian, Sumerian. Ah, we've discovered the, the first languages. And then someone looks out the window and goes, what's that down there? Are those sheep? Hmm. Yes, yes, I have heard that story before, and yeah, almost certainly apocryphal, but it yeah. probably does illustrate an interesting point. But I mean, it also speaks to the fact that you know, cats, by and large, don't make noises, except around humans, because they've kind of learnt that we communicate not through the laying of scents and rubbing mm. ourselves against furniture the entire mm. time. We do it by making noise, and cats are clever enough to go, hmm, noise making is obviously pretty important. I'm going to screech a lot from now on in. Yes. Anyway, returning to um, your Japhetic language theories... And away from cats. And away from cats for now. Um, so it, it all sort of... It tied in nicely with a lot of Stalin's ideas about nationality and, and language's relationship to it. And I have to be honest, reading, reading through articles about this, I, I got a little bit lost. Um, you'll, you'll be surprised to hear that the, the intricacies of Stalin's socialist theory eluded me a little bit. But there's, there's a lot of talk of 
of, of, of national identities, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, how things should work, whether it would be good for all nationalities to f come together or whether or not they should, you know, uh, cultural areas should retain their, their identity and uniqueness and so on. And quite frankly, it seems to seesaw between the two a lot of time. Well, I mean, it kind of fits in with the notion of Soviet or social realism, which takes it that class is a real thing but not necessarily other things associated with class. So in theory, if you get everyone to speak the same language, then you can kind of unify them in a class-based society, and thus ethnicity doesn't matter. Except that, of course, sometimes it does, because someone like Stalin, who comes from a particular region of the world, wants his particular origin space to still be important, and so there's a certain amount of what we might call inconsistency mm. when a despot is running a country and making things up as he goes along. As we saw with Lysenkoism mm. and we're going to see with Japhetic theory, endorsing something doesn't make it true, but it does fit an agenda. Yes, so, I mean, your Mars, part of Mars' theories was that languages tended to fuse together into, into a single communist, nice communisty language. Um, apparently... Now this is this is where the sort of the, the class consciousness comes in. Apparently, there was um, a campaign in the twenties and thirties to actually um, uh, what's the word? Not introduce mandate. That's not quite the word either. But uh, specifically specify uh, which alphabets certain ethnicities should be using for their languages, so that supposedly smaller ethnicities were encouraged to adopt a Latin alphabet of the kind that we use. Um, replacing the Cyrillic alphabets that they use and which the other larger ethnicities use. And I think that was possibly part of, you know, related to the idea of different different classes relating to different um, language strata and trying to sort of separate them more clearly. But um, it does get a little bit funny. It's, and I mean, to be fair, language and politics do intersect. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of sort of the, the, the identity politics side of things and, and uh, you know, pro, uh, the the policing of language, as some would say it, and the freedom of speech, and the oh you can't say that sort of type arguments. But entirely apart from that, lang language and, and nationality are sort of closely tied. And um, as we see with France, yeah, yeah. And I mean, they 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 particularly get into it with the the what is it called the Academy Francaise or whatever they the one hundred immortals. Mm. Uh, and and then uh, similarly in in uh, French Canada as well, but. All across the world, there's this line that I remember I heard a lot um, when I was doing linguistics at university. They'd say a language is a dialect with guns, which I believe is a is a uh, simplification of an earlier quote, which is a language is a dialect with an army and navy. Um, but what they by that what they mean is that a lot of the time, whether whether you have two separate languages or two dialects of the same language depends on whether or not the speakers of those languages wish to identify themselves as separate or together. So you get all over Europe, and I assume all over the rest of the world as well, you often get places where you'll have two neighbouring regions, and the languages that they speak certainly sound very similar to a third party, and yet they'll insist, oh no, no, we've got completely separate languages. What, what's that guy talking? I have no idea what he can even, I can't even understand the guy. Um, because because they want to remain separate, and then you get places like China, say, where there are a bunch of different families of languages, some of which are very, uh, very dissimilar to the point of mutual unintelligibility, but it suits China to say that they're all, you know, it's, it's all one language because they want to be all one country. So, like Stalin's not, not 
completely talking out of his ass when he wants to tie the concepts of language and nationality together. It's just exactly how he does it. Now, actually, there's a nice Romanian example here. So, Romanian is taken to be the last Latin-derived language that's still spoken to this day. But what's interesting about this is it's a lot more Latin now than it was 130 years ago. 130 years ago, the language had a lot more Slav in it and sounded a lot more Slavic. The people at the time wanted to distinguish themselves from their Slavic-speaking neighbours, so they engaged in a program to basically emphasise the Latin in Romanian and try to remove a lot of the loan words. And it was a very successful pro project. Romanian was re-Latinized, mm. which is, as most linguists will point out, kind of unheard of. Mm. Normally, gov government edicts to change a language or preserve it doesn't work because people simply speak the language they want to. Mm, there has to be buy-in. And that's the problem with the French example. The French government is going to great lengths to stop loanwords from being used in everyday French. It just it isn't working. Mm, yeah, you can just ignore you, them. You can insist for official documentation, but what you can't do is stop people from referring to burgers as burgers, whether they contain meat or entirely made of vegetables when they go to the supermarket. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, again, from my, my distant memories of linguistics lectures, that the French example was held up in contrast to the um, Kohangareo um, organization in New Zealand, which was very much grassroots. And so and that, that was very successful. That did sort of revitalize the Maori language to an extent um, because it came from the people and it, it, it had buy-in from the start, whereas French, it's being imposed from the top. But I assume I assume the people were on board with what the government was, yeah. was doing. Mm. So how well did this Japhetic theory actually work in Soviet Russia? Well, I mean... In, in terms of, of, of its popularity and how especially Mr. Ma got on, we, we see very uh, very a lot of similarity with, with what happened to Lysenko, where Lysenko was given, what did they make him? The head of... The head, the head of the was? Agricultural Sciences. Agricultural Sciences. The, in, the Institute thereof. Um, so Ma, he, he managed the National Library of Russia. Um, he managed the Japhetic Institute of the Academy of Sciences uh, from 1921 until he died in 1934. He was elected vice president of the Soviet Academy of the Sciences in 1930. So again, we see a person promoting a theory that finds favor with Stalin, um, finds quite a lot of success. Um, now, as you said before, Lysenkoism kind of fell out of favour after Stalin was out of the picture. Um, Japhetic theory fell out of favour after Ma was out of the picture, but not Stalin. So apparently Stalin himself ended up basically disowning this theory. Um, so there, there was, I mean, there was disagreement. It wasn't like, from what I gather, it wasn't quite like with Lysenko where you, you were not allowed to criticise or disagree. There was still disagreement in, in um, linguistic circles. Um, and eventually proponents or uh, opponents rather of Mars theories kind of got Stalin's ear from the sound of things. Um, and eventually in 1950, there was, now they always say an, an anti-Marist article signed by Joseph Stalin. So I don't know if that means Stalin himself actually wrote it. He certainly put his name on it, but I don't know if it was one of uh, these these um, competitors. It very to strongly Mara. suggested that Stalin would sign yeah. anything that went across his table. Mm. So, it, but, uh, so, so um, a paper came out criticizing um, Maoism 
or in Japhetic theory, um, and Stalin's name was on it, and so just like that, Japhetic theory was out. And it, it's interesting to see actually that um, the paper itself, uh, there's a quote here, um, uh, Inya Ma introduced into linguistics another and also incorrect and non-Marxist formula regarding the class character of language and got himself into a muddle and put linguistics into a muddle. Soviet linguistics cannot be advanced on the basis of an incorrect formula which is contrary to the whole course of the history of peoples and languages. So now it's anti-Marxist, his theory, which originally was was so nicely communistic that it found favour. Hmm. Just goes to show how, hmm. how the winds of thing can change and stuff. Now, what's the conspiracy angle here? Um, well, I mean, it's kind of the same as, as Lysenko, really. You have a theory which is being promoted for political reasons, not because it's necessarily good science. Um, the, 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 the politics precedes the science when we would hope it, it's, it was the other way around. Um, uh, mata mata climate change and so on and so forth. Mathematical um, uh, clean coal. Yes, actually, because that's a point I want to make. Once again, as I said with the Lysenkoism thing, people go, oh, this is an obvious thing that was wrong with communism. Look at how it, it abuses science for political gain. These are problems we find with capitalism as well. Clean coal, the thing that Donald Trump goes on about all the time. Mm. Something that's been promoted by the conser conservatives, aka the Republicans, in the US. A kind of magical substance which allows you to burn coal, but not burn the planet at the same time. Mm. It's a politically useful thesis with very little grounding in actual science. Mm. Turns out, politicians utilize theories like this all the time to get to the grassroots activism that keeps them afloat. Mm. And I mean, you don't need to look at, um, you don't need to get into tinfoil hat theory when you're talking about the, these sorts of conspiracies. We know, we have documented evidence that, say, petroleum companies knew about global warming decades in advance of it becoming into the public or eye. And tobacco then companies or tobacco companies yeah. knew about the link between smoking and lung cancer for mm. decades before being forced to admit it in front of, I was about to say the White House, actually, I think it was more Congress, mm. but before august bodies. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, this is, this is basically the same thing um, we see today. I, I believe at the time, sort of when, Stal when, when Japhetic theory, you know, Sna Stalin snapped his fingers and Japhetic theory was gone, um, in the West people would say, oh, look, look at that, there's your old bloody Stalin, that's your socialism for you. The guy at the top just says the word and suddenly science changes completely. I mean, in this instance, he was right, basically. Japhetic theory does appear to be complete nonsense, but um, uh, it, it still certainly raised eyebrows the way uh, the official science of a country could just turn on a dime simply because the fellow at the top said so. Matt Stalin, one of the world's greatest linguists. I'm, that's what I'm taking from that. Well, I assume, yes. So, I mean, we're kind of at the end of it again. We kind of ended in the same place as we did with the Lysenko one. Um, it's interesting to look at the kind of ideas people come up with, but um, it's, it's, it's part of a pattern, I guess, of um, science as pro or rather pseudoscience, in this case pseudo-linguistics, um, as, as propaganda. I mean, there's, in, the, in the case of linguistics, is less of a hard science, I suppose, than, than um, evolution or something like that. There is a lot of languages are much there'll be, more... There'll be some li linguists out there who will be very disappointed well, by then, your saying that. 
there's, I mean, there's a lot of sort of, you know, mathematics to linguistics and, and, and hard data and so on, but languages are much more malleable, you know, they're, they're, they're not laws of nature. Um, there, are lots of, there are lots of laws of linguistics we can come up with to explain the things we see, but there are always um, distinctions and, and, and exceptions and so on and so forth. So that you have more wiggle room to come up with pseudoscientific bollocks, I suppose, when it comes to linguistics, but um, pseudoscientific bollocks are still pseudoscientific bollocks, and that's all I have to say on the matter. And I agree. Mm. Now, for those of you who aren't patrons, this will be the end of the episode. Well. But for those of you who are patrons, there's exciting bonus content coming up in the patron bonus special, where I'll be talking about a roundtable which I appeared in, but didn't say much in. Mm. We'll have a little bit of a discussion about possible Chinese government interference with the workings at AUT, or is it? The Majestic 12 documents, which have been doing the rounds recently, may have been the product of a Russian disinformation campaign. Those wacky Russians. And finally, a final update on the Whale Oil blog. Mm. Uh, but if you want to know more, you'll have to tune in to the patron bonus episode. And if you want to tune into the penis, pa pa penis? Bonus? <laughs> the pa bonus penis? <laughs> penis Botron? The heinous patron bonus episode. The bonus patron episode, not the penis Botron, which I think was Secretary General of the United Nations for Botron. a while. I am Botron. Mm. The patron bonus episode. And robot. Uh, to access one of those things, uh, you will need to be a patron. And if you are, thank you very much. And if you are Botron, all please hail do not destroy Botron. us. Yes. yes. Uh, and if you'd like to be a patron, then you, you can. Frankly, we, we were not going to stop you at all and would indeed encourage you to do so by directing you towards our uh, patronage campaign on Patreon or the native patronage campaign at podbean.com where this podcast is hosted. But that's enough naked capitalism. Or is it? We do have a lot of communism to balance out for the, from the rest of but this frankly, episode. But I think that's all I can stand. Frankly, I think there's only mm. one more thing to say. All hail Botron. All hail Botron. All hail. been listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy starring josh addison and dr mrx dentit which is written researched recorded and produced by josh and m you can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its podbean or patreon campaigns and if you need to get in contact with either josh or m you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their twitter accounts mikey fluids and conspiracism Remember, they're coming to get you, Barbara.